0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Filling in for John O'Brien, I'm Kendra Hanna. In this episode, Asian American activism has a long, impactful history in the United States. The Asian American movement in the 1960s and 1970s fought against racism and war and for labor rights. But this kind of organizing continues today, speaking to current issues while trying to build a more just future. Scholars Diane C. Fugino and Robin Magalit Rodriguez chronicle current Asian-American activism and its many victories and challenges in contemporary Asian-American activism, building movements for liberation. The book narrates the lived experiences of organizers and activists to highlight their work across diverse issues like mass incarceration in the United States and the global fight for democracy. Rodriguez and Fugino's work highlights how knowledge and experience is transmitted between generations as their subjects work towards transformative justice. Diane C. Fujino is a professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is the Faculty Equity Advisory and Associate Dean in the Division of Social Sciences and co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Asian American Studies. Fujino also sits on the Advisory Board of CalFu, a journal of comparative and relational ethnic studies, and the Journal of Civil and Human Rights. Her work focuses on the history of Japanese and Asian American activism within the Asian American radical tradition. Robin Magalit Rodriguez is a professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Davis. She writes about Filipino and Asian American issues with a recent focus on Asian American activism. Rodriguez is the founding director of the Belosan Center for Filipino Studies. In 2021, she was awarded the Excellence in Mentoring Award by the Association for Asian American Studies. This talk was presented on January 18, 2022 by Town Hall Seattle.
1: Thank you so much to everybody who's joining us tonight. I am Diane Fugino, speaking from Santa Barbara, California, the unceded ancestral lands and waters of the Chumash people. Robin and I are deeply appreciative of so many who have made our book possible. Too many to name, but we would be remiss if we didn't name a few. The University of Washington Press and their longstanding commitments to Asian American scholarship. All the staff have been terrific to work with, but we need to give special recognition to a truly exceptional editor, Mike Bacham. We want to thank the Seattle Town Hall team for organizing tonight's events, and we want to thank the incredible contributors to our anthology, all dedicated organizers and thinkers, and to my amazing co-editor, Robin Rodriguez, I couldn't have had a better partner for this book. This book emerged when Robin and I um, emerges from our long standing commitments to liberation for Filipinics, Japanese, Asian American, Black and many other communities in their fights against white supremacy, racial capitalism and imperialism. Um, We are grateful for the work of Asian American activists, journalists, scholars, artists, and everyday people who are writing about creating visual and moving images and in other ways making visible Asian American activism. This was crucial because as we were creating this um, anthology, we were in the midst of the pandemic. There was much attention to anti-Asian violence and racism, um, but Even then, there was little, there was lesser attention to activism by Asian Americans, and yet we have a very long history of this type of organizing, um, including from the Asian American movement of the 1960s and 70s, a really vibrant movement that has so many lessons to learn. Thankfully, there's a growing body of literature studying Asian American activism, um, but most of this has focused on that important period of the 60s and 70s. With notable exceptions, there's very little to narrate the and analyze the current Asian American activism. And so with our anthology which is the first of its kind to focus on contemporary Asian American activism, we hope that this will shape public awareness of the rich history and current day Asian American struggles and help to shift the narrative around Asian Americans. By focusing on Asian American activism as our book does, we work to resist the model minority storyline and its logic to erase any need for resistance. And as you'll see, as we narrate the 14 chapters in this book, the focus on Asian American activism reveals how anti-Asian racism operates for Asian American people and communities, how attacks on Asian American women in Atlanta certainly reflects racism and misogyny, but it's also an impact of US militarism and imperialism in Asia. And that activism has so much to teach us about third world and cross-racial solidarities and the need to think relationally about Asian liberation intertwined with black and indigenous liberation and the liberation of all peoples, which was a principle of the Asian American movement. Our book highlights collective leadership and collective care and the re- work to resist not only domestic racism but also global imperialism. I want to make one point about our book, which is that we really strove to center organizing knowledge or the production of knowledge that arises from people whether working on the streets in community-based orgs in schools and universities doing cultural work, whose struggles engage the question of how do we create change? This book is not a manual for organizers, but it does narrate contemporary Asian American organizing and reflects lessons, as in the book's subtitle, Building Movements for Liberation. I want to read one passage from our introduction that I hope illuminates our ideas. We distinguish between activists and organizers. Activists work for social justice in a myriad of ways, including short-term, one-off, and supporting actions. Organizers do the deep and sustaining work to develop campaigns with long-term objectives and grapple with strategies that can achieve a more equitable distribution of power and resources, the building of social movements and ultimately a liberatory society. We hope that learning from the knowledge of Organizers and activist scholars in this anthology can help to inspire people to deepen their critical thinking and activist practice and help to transform activists into organizers. Because we believe that social transformation arises through praxis, or the unity of theory and practice, we believe that both study and struggle are necessary and intertwined components in our collective work towards creating emancipatory futures. We next turn to Robin, who's going to talk about how this book came into being, and after that we will give an overview of the chapters of the book, and finally we will open up to a conversation before between the two of us before we open it up for Q&A.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Diane, for laying out uh, what the book does and its, its significance, not just for uh, the scholarship one on Asian American activism, but also for uh, the movement. And how this book came about is really a a really great story. Um, One of the important themes of our book is really looking at uh, intergenerationality and uh, the ways in which uh, intergenerational relationships are a really key mode by which the Asian American movement continue to have an afterlife and continue to have an afterlife, even in contemporary Asian American organizing. And and so much about this book is about intergenerationality and our particular relationship, our intergenerational relationship. Although, you know, um, Diane is just a bit uh, kind of uh, uh, ahead of me generationally. But the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I was introduced to Asian American studies as a field of study and as a political practice practice or a political project through Diane, who was my professor. Uh, Diane was teaching, I believe, her very first course at uh, in Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. I was in my final year at UC Santa Barbara. I believe she was in her first quarter at UC Santa Barbara teaching an Asian American women and feminism course. Uh, she walked into that course and it changed my life. I, you know, didn't imagine, I don't think I'd ever imagined it, possible that uh, an Asian American woman can occupy that place at the university lectern as expert. And, and uh, her being present, that really kind of uh, was so deeply impactful for me that I would see myself doing that work. And of course, more than that, what, what Diane taught me is that Asian American studies is more, is more than just kind of a field of study in which one can kind of be an expert, but that Asian American studies is really also a political project a commitment to uh, teaching and researching for liberation. And, and really, that, um, that model of, of activist scholarship or scholar activism is something that has inspired me through the years. It's what uh, prompted me to go and pursue my, my own my doctoral degree. And over the years, after I finished and I entered the professoriate, you know, Diane and I would connect over and over again, primarily in the space of Asian-American studies. And really work together to continue to try to, to bring activist knowledge into the field to really center activist knowledge. I think for the both of us, we recognize how much the field was born out of activism and some of the early knowledges. Um, you know that the, that the the field had relied on were activist knowledges, and we we really wanted to, to do that work of of. Um, of bringing that active, this knowledge back into the center of our field. And so we would connect over and over again around scholar activist sessions um, in the Association for Asian American Studies, of the AAAS. Uh, also, we would uh, come together. Um, to to uh, co-edit an anthology on Asian American activism in the leading journal in Asian American studies, or the very first journal in Asian American studies, Amerasia Journal. So there's a real well coming full circle for me personally, but it also is a reflection of this intergenerational relationship. Uh, this book, uh, in terms of the actual coming together of this book proper, uh, it start it uh, we we organized. Um, with this intention of, of bringing a book together. Uh, but what, what we did was organize a symposium first at UC Santa Barbara, so my alma mater, where Diane continues to be, during the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Asian-American um, uh, for the 50th anniversary for, of the fight for ethnic studies, including the fight for Asian-American studies. Uh, we you know, organized with great intention, not just uh, to hold an event, a symposium to mark the fifty years of uh, ethics, the ethics study struggle, but really with the intention of bringing together uh, organizers across generations uh, with the with this vision of producing this book. And um, there were two parts to our coming together. So initially, there was a public symposium, so we had all of the uh, of the contributors, or most of the contributors, that is, of this book come together to present on their work, their organizing work in a public symposium. And then we had this closed workshop where we were able to, to really dive deep, not just into kind of the, the book and what we were hoping for the book, although that was a crucial part of our closed workshop. Really, our closed workshop was also to dive deep around big movement questions. We were motivated uh to uh to not just produce this book as a kind of archive of the Asian American movement or Asian American activism today but really that this book um haven't uh, uh helped to uh, to shape uh, activisms on the ground um, today and in the future, and so the close workshop became an opportunity for us, and I think a rare opportunity really for many of the contributors who, you know, uh, are, are so in the thick of struggle on the ground often don't have space and time to be able to come together from across sector issue areas or sectors, or even geographies to really dive deep into big movement questions. And and we were able to provide that opportunity at UCSB through this, uh, this symposium and the coming together, this closed workshop. So that's sort of the story of the book. It's a, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story, and it's a, testa, it's a testament, too, to intergenerationality and how these relationships can really spark and inspire um, newer generations, as Diane did for me when I encountered her first in a classroom over 20 years ago. So I'm going to turn back now to Diane to talk about just the book proper. Uh, we'll be talking about each of the major sections. Um, so I'll go ahead and pass it on to Diane.
1: Thank you, Robin. What we want to do is go over the contents of the book. The book comes together in four parts with three chapters in each part. The first part looks at incarcerations, displacements, and transformations. And it leads out with... Eddie Zhang, who you see pictured here, who was a former prisoner in San Quentin State Prison in Northern California. And while he was there, he worked to get an Asian American studies class to get ethnic studies there. And the prison officials found this so threatening to them that they ended up punishing them for this kind of organizing and put them in isolation and made it very difficult for them to do this work. And in this chapter, Eddie narrates the, the, the struggle that they did for ethnic studies inside prisons, as well as the kinds of lessons that you learn. Like he says, you can't expect to, you know, you, could, you can't expect rewards, right? You could expect to be punished for making social justice demands. But that punishment isn't always the worst thing, and that one of the things that came out of that for him were some beautiful relationships. Yuri Kochiyama and others started writing to him, and they later formed the Asian Prisoner Support Committee, which exists to this day, doing really important work around deportation. And Eddie worked with that organization for uh, many, many years. Um, The next chapter is by Karen Umemoto, a professor um, and director of Asian American Studies Center at UCLA. And she did this work while she was in Hawaii as a professor there of urban um, studies, and she this her piece reflects uh, is her self reflections on her collaborative community research project that helped to develop alternative pathways to the juvenile justice system in Hawaii where native uh, hawaiians or kanaka maoli are disproportionately imprisoned on their own land right we've seen this story before and what they tried to do was use Kanakamali values and epistemologies to promote an ethos of healing and restoration, and she narrates the kind of research in this project that it was. And the third section is by Angelica Kabande um, with Catherine Nassal, and it's looking at the um, work of SAMCON or the South of Market Action Network in San Francisco. And prisons aren't the only ways to create displacements, and what SAMCON is looking at is struggles against housing displacement and gentrification. And uh, Angelica's Kambande is a SAMCON organizer. And in this, she narrates their campaigns, which involves an effort to listen to the community, to involve the community in their struggles, um, and to discuss the history of so-called urban renewal in the city. Part two looks at the ways that internationalism and the local are intertwined. and we start with a uh, chapter by Ga Young Chung, who is a professor at UC Davis with Robin looking at undocumented immigration activism of Korean Americans and we know that in this struggle for immigration rights and liberation, Asian Americans are often ignored and left out of both undocumented populations as well as the struggles around, undocumented immigration rights. And guy Young um, Chung discusses this, and she does it as both a researcher and as someone who got involved in the um, organizing that was happening at the organization she was studying. And she did her research in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and in Virginia as well, where she worked closely with Korean American organizations and really tried to resist this um, ways in which Korean Americans are placed in the model minority box, and that she tried to resist the binary between deserving and undeserving or disposable immigrants. She critiqued the meanings of citizenship and inclusion in, in her work, a really fabulous chapter. The next chapter in this section is an interview that I was fortunate to do with Javed Tariq. And Javed Tariq is a former taxi driver, as well as the co-founder and senior staff member of the New York Taxi Workers Association Alliance and a treasurer for the National Taxi Workers Alliance. And in this interview, Javed Tariq narrates the incredible work of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, including their work to to resist splitting labor. For example, when Uber and and Lyft drivers flooded the New York um, roadways and displaced uh, taxi drivers, they could have separated the two, but instead they used a model of labor organizing based on unity and solidarity. And in this way helped to resist the growing part-timization and precarity of drivers in the neoliberal gig economy. They also worked nonstop to support taxi drivers as they picked up workers from the airports as frontline workers who were vulnerable to COVID. And in their first three or four months of the pandemic, they fielded 10,000 calls and emails from drivers. And the last chapter in this section is by Jessica Antonio, who is in the national leadership of Bion USA, and she narrates Bion USA which is one of the most important US-based Filipino um, organizations struggling for democracy and transformation in the Philippines, engaging um, Filipinos in the United States. And she's particularly interested in thinking about the process of politicalization that leads Filipino Americans to engage in transnational activism. And she looks at in particular, the exposure programs Um, led by Bayon USA that enabled Filipinos in the U.S. to travel to the Philippines to meet with all different sectors of Philippine society, including youth, peasants and the urban poor. And, uh, you know, it narrates the ways in which this program was transformational for many. So these chapters show that internationalism and the local don't need to be separated, but in fact, come together and shape each other in important ways.
2: Now, um, I'll talk about parts three and four of the book. Uh, uh, Part three is political education and radical pedagogy. So, you know, of course, uh, this book came out. We organized this book at a symposium that was really marking the 50th anniversary of the establishment of ethnic studies, including Asian American studies. So political education is really important to us as a thematic. And um, we have in this part, May Fu, who is an activist scholar also working at the university. Um, but uh, in her case, she's working at the University of San Diego and her chapter is entitled Political Education as Revolutionary Praxis. And what's really exciting about May's chapter is that she's looking at the ways in which uh, in effect, ethnic studies or Asian American studies, how that that political education gets done or how ethnic studies and Asian American studies, which we typically find at universities, gets done in the context of of struggle and movement. So she's looking at uh, political education, specifically in um, Southeast Asian organization that she worked with and studied. But again, looking at the ways in which this Ethnic Studies, I, the way I kind of understand her chapter, how Ethnic Studies and Asian American Studies uh, gets um, taken out of the university and really done in, in the context of struggle and movement. Um, chapter The second uh, chapter in this particular part is by Catherine H. Lee entitled, Organizing Wherever Your Feet Land, Reconceptualizing Writing and Writing Instruction in the Legacy of Asian American Activism. What's really, really great about this chapter, and actually if you, we don't, um, We didn't get to talk about it too much um, in the breakdown of each of the parts, but you might notice that there are chapters that are uh, written with an individual or in the case of Diane's chapter in part two, um, it was an interview. So basically what we tried to do that's also very novel and innovative in this book is we really were mindful that organizers or organizers, sometimes the writing process can be incredibly uh, intimidating and challenging. And so we partnered in some cases, graduate students with um, our contributors to help them with the, the writing process. And Catherine Lee uh, works specifically with Eddie, uh, Eddie Zhang and also with Pam Tao Lee, And she reflects on that process and, and what that did for her uh, and, and, in in her chap in this chapter here in this part, uh, you also we also have a chapter by Soya Jung who works with Change Lab, um, in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, uh, and what's uh, the title of her chapter is "How Does It Feel to Be on the Precipice: Change Lab a Racial Justice Experiment." And what's what's interesting and important about uh, Soya's chapter is that she maps out this new ways in which Asian American movement uh, are. Be- how the Asian American movement is also, in in the present moment, how Asian American organizers and activists are experimenting with new kinds of organizational forms. And so, uh, Sawyer reflects on what it looks like to have done this work through Change Lab, which is actually an LLC, a kind of experiment organizationally in doing movement work. And that is the focus of her chapter, Uh, really, really interesting. And I think she's very, very well known and beloved in the Seattle community. Um, So it's great to have her uh, talk about this book in this venue um, and having Soya be part of that book. So chapter four is on movement building, uh, shaped by the past, creating new futures. As I said earlier, intergenerationality is such a key thing for us. Uh, It was really, really important for us to be able to trace out the ways in which activisms today can find their roots in the Asian American movement. Uh, Alex Tom is is a contributor for this part. Uh, on his chapter on movement praxis in the age of Trumpism. So, Alex Tom uh, often refers to himself as a Gelder, uh, who is somebody who was very much mentored by people who uh, were uh, at the forefront of the Asian American movement of the late 1960s and 1970s. He, and he's emerged as a kind of elder, a young elder, who is really um, deep in the work of trying to uh, not only carry on some of the lessons from the Asian American movement, but really trying to, um, to strategize around how our movement praxis needs to shift in the context of, in in of Trumpism and the new kinds of challenges we face in the United States today. Um, I did a chapter actually reflecting on my student organizing, actually, while I was a student at UC Santa Barbara and a student of, of Diane's and actually working alongside Diane, I, I worked on this chapter alongside my graduate student, uh, Wayne Japanda, who is also an activist scholar, uh, looking at in, in some of the student organizing we were doing uh, in the 1990s California in my chapter, Pete Wilson, trying to see us all broke which is a line from Dupac. Also in this part four is a chapter by Pam Tao Lee, who is a movement elder to many of us, including Alex Tom and myself and others who are in the volume, who talks in her chapter about the struggle to abolish environmental and economic racism, Asian radical imagining from the homeland to the front line. So in this work, she's both reflecting on her own work in kind of the the beginnings of um, of kind of the environmental justice movement, especially with when the environmental justice movement was really starting to pivot toward really grappling with uh with racism and white supremacy and the ways in which white supremacy uh structures um our lived uh environment, our uh, the environment. And she talks, reflects both on that kind of early work as well as uh, uh thinking about uh the our uh, uh, kind of our futures um And and I'm sorry if I'm kind of rushing through this part because I'm noticing the time and I also want to make sure that we have plenty of time to speak, um, to have a discussion with Diane and I about our hopes for the book and for the movement. But before I get to that, let me just quickly uh, encourage everybody, uh, we've gone through um, an overview of the book, but of course, we really, really hope you pick it up yourself. And, sub- and read it. And we do encourage you, if you're in Seattle, um, of course, you can order from the University of Washington Press, but do, do, su- do support our, your local bookstore. We really encourage you to go to Elliott Bay, Bay Books as well to, uh, to get the book. The address is there for those of you who are joining us from Seattle. Um, one of our a major, uh, our chosen distributor for this book, beyond for folks outside of Seattle, is Eastwind Books based at, in Berkeley, California. And you have the link um, there. So I wanted to um, really transition now to a discussion, thank you, of our hopes for the book and the movement. Um, I should mention that there is an epilogue to this book, and it's a little hard for me to talk about this epilogue. You know, the truth is, this book in so many ways is such a um, it's so much of reflects my life and my my journey really first as a young uh, person in Diane's uh, class then as a scholar activist and even as a activist mother and so um, the the very end of the production for this book actually happened uh, within weeks after my eldest son passed away he was 22 years old had uh, decided after doing a lot of organizing Um in high school. Uh, He was uh, biracial, Black and Filipinx, or Filipino, Uh, did a lot of organizing with the movement for Black Lives while in high school, continued some of that work into college, uh, was at the forefront of anti-gentrification campaigns in in Oakland, California, where he was born and where he um, was enrolled as a community college student, and then decided to uh, go to the Philippines to work alongside and learn from Indigenous uh, communities at the age of 20 uh, in 2018, and then um, found himself in the, uh, when the pandemic happened, um, stuck in the Philippines. And um, so, he passed away in early August of 2020, just as we were kind of wrapping up predictions for this book. And, um, you know, I, 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 uh, many of the contributors, including De- Diane, really felt like it would be uh, appropriate to write an epilogue that kind of recounts um, Mato's life and his work, because in a many ways, really, in, in Diane and I, you know, in writing this book, our our audience really, or what we had in mind was the generation. Gen Z, we we had in mind the millennials, all the students that we were encountering in our classrooms and our worry for them, worry that um, in a moment where activism was happening primarily, it seemed on social media, where connection was happening on social media, political education happening in social media. I think we were really, uh, we we felt really um, the importance, again, of bringing some of these generational knowledges um, in the form of a book as an invitation to study. Um, and, you know, as a kind of ending to this book or this epilogue, um, as, as a member of Gen Z, um, Amada was born in 1998, um, was 22, again, at, at the time that this uh, book came to his conclusion and when he passed, um, in so many ways he represented uh, the hopes of the movement. Uh, He was very much uh, committed to being present. And one of the things about Amato was his social media profile was very sparse. He didn't really engage politically there. He was engaged in building relationships, being in the streets, being in neighborhoods, organizing in that way. He he didn't like actually calling himself an activist. He did, in fact, call himself an organizer Um, when he was Oakland. He really in Oakland, he went to seek out. Um, and build relationships with elders. Uh, He had really close relationships with Panthers in Oakland who were still, who continued to work in Oakland, uh, built relationships with movement elders in the Asian American movement. Um, Clearly his work was about solidarity, partly because he's biracial. It necessarily meant that he was organizing around his multiple identities as Black, as Asian American, as Filipino. He was committed to internationalism. Um, really felt the the importance of learning directly from the most, most marginalized in the world, the people kind of at the front lines in the Philippines who are dealing with uh, the ravages of climate change, the ravages of extractive economies and what that does um, for um, indigenous peoples. And so, you know, I think for, for us um, in many ways, you know, though his, his passing was untimely, he does represent our hope for a generation that our hope that um, there are ways that this Asian-American movement uh, has all these wonderful lessons. And in his hands, as a member of the Gen Z, he was able to kind of manifest some of the best lessons of the movement and also to teach us even more. I mean, among the things that he taught us really was around um, mental health. One of the big things, because he was a real advocate and proponent for mental health, the importance of kind of being, slowing down, self-care, um, but not self-care in a way that's sort of about being closed off and disconnected from community, but really doing this work of communal community, um, collective care. So, you know, um, we really, really do hope that he and the book become an inspiration for Gen Z. And just pass it on to you, Diane, just in terms of, you know, again, thinking about all the things that we hope for uh, with this book. Because, of course, you know, I think for both of us, the book isn't it doesn't end with just it being published. We really have visions beyond um It getting it in the hands of readers.
1: Yeah, thank you, Robin. And I think that you know we move from Pam Talley, who was the keynote speaker at our symposium in 2019, and who has over a 50 year um, history of engagement in the radical Asian American movement. Um, She was part of the struggles on different campuses. Um, She was at Hayward, but, you know, on different campuses, all in the Bay Area that were connected in the struggle for ethnic studies and and the building of the early Asian American movement. And she worked with Iwar Kuhn. And then as you mentioned, Robin, she really became a major um, environmental activist who connected environmental justice with racial justice. And we moved from Pam Lee to Amado, Right? And they both are doing some of this work. So we're seeing that intergenerational connection. But they're, they're doing some of this work that is really intersectional, linking racism with environmental justice, connecting international with local, as a model went to the Philippines to work. And Pam has worked locally, but she's also worked internationally, including support work, major support work for Philippine independence and liberation, um, and Black-Asian relations and Third World Solidarities. There's just so much that, that is here in this book. And, you know, we really hope that this book helps people to ask questions, right, to learn about Asian-American activism. Um, we feel that those people that the people who are involved in it, in Asian American studies and in the movement, know something about activism. There's a lot on the internet. There are ways to connect with this. And yet at the same time, the Asian American activism is one of the most understudied and under-narrated social movements out there. And we hope that people learn more about Asian American activism, but then ask questions about how knowing about the history and presence of Asian American organizing shifts our understandings of so much Asian American communities, racial regimes, the ongoing impacts of militarism and imperialism abroad as well as on communities at home as Atlanta shows us some of that kind of work. It creates a real shift around the narratives about the needs for resistance and protest And so we hope that it does this kind of work and draws out some of the key um, characteristics of Asian American activism. Some of it has to do with the ways in which the international is, I think, so present in so much of Asian American organizing on the ground. Some of it has to do with um, solidarity work and the ways that Asian Americans, it seems like really it's one of the the things that asian american activists are engaging with um to different degrees and in uneven ways but really focused around you know struggling around anti black racism Um, making connections but not seeing the two as completely parallel, but also seeing ways in which one cannot uplift their own communities without thinking about how any policy impacts all groups um, and and that we need to, to be in connection and solidarity with everybody. And that I think this idea of relational leadership is something that that I really have as a takeaway from our book, and from the symposium, and from the ways that so many of the organizers work within our, um, within within the you know the, the authors in, in this book, and I'm thinking about Katherine Lee, who you mentioned, right? A, a, who at the time was a graduate student at UCSB, and she was the project coordinator for our symposium. She also had been a writing instructor, and she was studying the ways that writing works to both, I guess, decolonize the mind, right, to free one's thinking, as well as her research was looking at how writing programs needed to be constructed to create truly transformative change. So when she was working with Pam and Eddie on and, and supporting them, they developed this beautiful collaborative relationship. And she did support them in their, they knew exactly what they wanted to write. It wasn't that she needed, they needed help there, but she helped to, to get it all on paper She learned so much from them, from these two ferocious organizers, right? And she saw the power of writing in the work that Pam and Eddie were doing to connect um, writing to urgent needs and to help to um, enable us to, 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 to find what she says, this collective collaborative process and innovation. And so it really shifted for her the ways that she was thinking about writing by working with Eddie and Pam and being part of this anthology. Thank you for
2: that. That's right. I I, I see some questions uh, popping up from our audience, Diane. So one of the questions has to do with our thoughts on the model minority myth and whether we should, as a population, I'm guessing Asian Americans, move away from oppression comparison. Well, I guess I could start. I mean, we tackle the, the model minority myth pretty head on um, in the book, in the introduction. I mean, one among the things that uh, we critique about the model minority myth is, is the fact that it does um, obscure uh, the fact that Asian Americans have been uh, very much active in struggles for liberation. And so part of, uh, you know, um, our, uh, you know, the impulse in, in, in bringing this book together was about being able to contest that model minority myth and the ways in which it obscures um, generations of of, of, of social change making and liberation work on the part of Asian Americans. I and mean, There's that. Of course, the other issue for us is uh, we we share this critique of the, the model minority as a myth that was really uh, rooted in anti-Blackness. Uh, for us, Uh, we understand the model minority myth as a construction born out, in fact, of the very same moment of both the rise of the Black liberation struggle um, and the Asian American uh, movement of the late 1960s and 70s. It was really manufactured, produced and disseminated precisely as a means of um, trying to, minimize the kinds of claims on the part of black radicals. And so uh, our, uh, you know, we we're very, very critical of the model minority myth. And I think for us, it's less about comparing oppression. I think what our framework is that white supremacy uh, has shaped all of us, all peoples of color. Now it has shaped and impacted our lives unevenly and differently. Uh, that's why it's very important for us to come from a very intersectional lens because of course white supremacy works alongside of uh, heterosexism, transphobia, uh, patriarchy, also, all sorts of ableism, um, other forms of, um, of oppression. Uh, and, and for us, it's less about um, kind of uh, oppression comparison and really more about understanding the ways in which white, white supremacy uh, differently operates in, uh, in, our very, in our lives and how um, the importance then of, of uh, developing these kinds of intersectional uh, an intersectional lens and a, a praxis of solidarity. So, you know, I think that at least from, I would say that's sort of how, how I kind of think about our approach to to the model minority myth, if you wanted to add more to that, uh, Diane. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, And I want to add one more component to it, which is the ways that it connects to global empire building. And so one node of, um, The model minority is when it gets really popularized in 1966, as Robin's narrating, at the moment that we can say Black power emerges, if you will, with Stokely Carmichael making the call for Black power and the Black Panther Party um, uh, uh, forming. And so it was used, as you're articulating, to discipline Black militancy, Black radicalism. But the other node is a decade earlier, or two decades earlier, right after the end of World War II. And you suddenly see, you know, Japanese Americans had just been incarcerated. My parents were among that. My family was among that. Um, and they quickly are given awards for military service and sacrifice. They're quickly, these stories emerging around success stories. Um, There's an opening up of the suburbs in ways for Japanese and Chinese that didn't happen in the same ways for Blacks and others. Um, And so there's a sudden emergence and and people, Japanese Americans who were seen as the enemy are now suddenly seen as model citizens. It was surprising in many ways. And it led people to ask, why was this happening? And one of the reasons has to do with international relations and the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II, rising to global power and wanting to show itself different from European colonialism. And um, yet it was expanding, especially in Asia and the Pacific. And so showing a reduction of racism in the U.S., in particular anti-Asian racism, was productive for the U.S., as it engaged Japan as a junior partner and its expansionism in Japan, it had occupied Japan, right? It was was controlling Japan in certain ways. And it was also very much trying to contest the rise of Mao in China. And so there were productive reasons for this emergence. And so at this moment, right, so many decades later, It is still the dominant narrative. I hear people say, do we really need to talk about it? Yes, within Asian American studies, within the movements, people have critiqued it up and down. Um, but it is still the dominant narrative. And I think that the work of focusing on activism and looking at the ways that so much of Asian American activism, I mean, there's such a broad range, but so much of it engages in critiques of imperialism and racial capitalism and heteropatriarchy and is seeking transformative justice, you know. And I actually wanted to ask you, Robin, about uh, you know, what you envision as necessary to, to get us towards transformative liberation, right, um, and, and the questions of what are, what is the role of reform and what kinds of reforms are we talking about in this work?
2: Sure, no, thank you for that, because I think it really does kind of mm. connect to one of the other questions that has come up about um, the work of social justice progress. So, I guess the question is, do you see much of the work of social justice progress Moving away from activism at the forefront and more towards the deeper organizing, or does revolution require both? And I think it does relate to this question about kind of reform mm-hmm. and radicalism, which are big questions that have always been, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. present for, for, for organizers and activists, right? Um, I think, in my view, and I think this came up a lot also um, in in the, t- the closed door session that we had with the contributors is this idea that uh, reform um, is, is that, that genuine transformation and reform don't have to see be seen as sort of um, kind of diametrically opposed or oppositional. That in fact, there is a function for um, successful reform in the sense that uh, on one hand, reform opens up political space for actually more organizing and work to be done. It allows us to grow, it opens up political space for for movement growth. Um, On the other hand, just, you know, these wins become important. However small and incremental some of these reformist wins might be, they do also demonstrate that change can, is possible. And it's something that emboldens us to then fight for even more. And, and I think that that's also, you know, what, what the function of reform can be tw- when, when we're kind of thinking about um, uh, transformative revolutionary change. And so, I mean, so that's how I would kind of res- respond to kind of that, that query around kind of reform versus kind of more radical change. Now, even in connection to this question about activism and, and organizing, again, I think it requires both. I think it is important that people feel activated, that individually people kind of um, do that work of responding to issues of the day um, and, and standing up and voicing out, speaking out and taking these kinds of individual steps. But I do think about activism typically is in some ways kind of very individualized. Sometimes it's in connection with movement, um, some There are times when it, it, it isn't necessarily always anchored in movement, especially the kind of work that happens, I think, at least in social media is primarily activists as opposed to organizing work. Organizing work, for me at least, Really requires uh, the relationship building. It is really uh, um, coming together in a collective space, working together collectively and crafting kind of um, uh, an approach to organizing around issues. Uh, it's about being accountable, and and I think that that's we we are we do need that. And I think my worry, I think our worry, and partly again why we wanted to do a book like this is. The worry was that these lessons around organizing were not being made available in the ways that we wanted them to be able to, to be available to a younger generation. Yeah, Dan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I agree with you that we need activism and we need organizing. And I think the challenges, right, to, to recognize that there are things that, that um, exceed activism, right? In the ways that that we and others have talked about this, right? And it is important. And people will enter where they are, and that's also one of the principles of organizing, right? That you meet people where they're at, and then try to move them, right? Or they move themselves. They teach, and um. But but I think that we want to. Think about right. What what is what does what is our vision? What is our radical imagination? What is it? What is the society that we really want to live in? Not this. Not just the society that we think we can get. And it will take a kind of boldness. It will take a courage. It will take uh, a, a, a taking the risks, right, to try the impossible to do what we think cannot happen, because otherwise, if we just try to get what we think we can get, we just are always reaching for low hanging fruit. And often what we end up getting then are the things that are maybe a tad bit bitter, but not really what we want. And they're so easy to um, co-opt and to to undercut at any moment. And so that's why you know, we we call this the subtitle Building Movements for Liberation. We think that it's going to take much more thinking beyond, thinking for the campaign win, which is crucial, right? We need these victories, but thinking beyond that, right? In what ways is this going to get rolled back, right? In what ways is working within institutions, in my mind, you know, there is a necessity, it may not be for everyone, but there's a necessity of transforming government structures. And at the same time, recognizing that power can always undercut and co-op and, uh, you know, change what, what we've gained in this one moment. So thinking ahead, right? And I think there's also a difference between as, as people are talking about in in the abolitionist and other movements, right? Reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms, right? So if the reforms that we're getting are just these creating reforms and that's sort of the goal, that's problematic. But if there's a a larger, more transformative goal that we're striving for, and in the process we're gaining non-reformist reforms, then this is what makes sense to me as efforts to do. And this is crucial. For example, in the abolitionist movement, this becomes really crucial to think about, right? Like what for police reforms, what reforms actually move people away from a system, right? That, that, that is oppressive and creates uh, safety in ways that doesn't or reduces harm to communities, right? It, these are crucial questions. That 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 that
2: our contributors raise. So we're coming close to time, but there is a question um, that has been posed about how activism and organizing has changed since the pandemic mm-hmm. and since the rise of um, publicized hate crimes against Asian American people. Um, I don't know if you wanted to take that, Diane. I can also speak to that, of course, too. Yeah, I think that, well, but
1: please, Robin, because I'm seeing the next question, which I think I'll take on leadership. So, Okay, sure, please, sure, please, sure. Please, please. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, what I can say is this, and this sort of goes back to the model minority myth in the sense that um, what, you know, what was interesting is how surprised <laughs> Uh, sort of people in the mainstream seem to be with the rise of um, anti-Asian hate. But I think for many of us who have been organizing in the Asian American community, we knew it as soon as the news broke about uh, uh, the pandemic in China. We knew exactly to anticipate that um, we, uh, Asian Americans in the United States were going to, to experience some kind of backlash Um, And again, you know, uh, Diane spoke to how international relations, um, uh, the ways in which the model minority myth uh, was crafted in, in the broader context of U.S. imperialism. Uh, But it's also true that, you know, uh, international relations or uh, the U.S.'s relationships with uh, countries in Asia have always had an impact, right, on Asian-American communities in the U.S. Clearly in World War II, for example, um, it's trade wars with Japan, trade wars with China that has had an impact on anti uh, kind of uh, uh, the spiking of anti-Asian hate. So um, I guess for Asian-Americans, with the as the pandemic hit, I think we we were already responding. We knew that this was going to come, and we started organizing almost immediately. I can kind of share my own local experiences. Um, I uh, was part. I could organized with other Asian Americans, as, even as uh, shelter in place orders were were you know where we're all kind of. Uh, began to shift our our work to Zoom or through Zoom and other kind of, you know, online platforms. Um, Asian Americans, at least in our region, I live in uh, what's known as the greater Sacramento region or what is really Plains Miwok land. Um, We can, Asian American organizers were connecting across different Uh, uh, kind of nonprofits of folks who may not have had an organization that we're working with, uh, because we knew, again, to anticipate that anti-Asian hate was going to rise. And uh, we immediately kind of organized ourselves, organized uh, to... to demand that uh, public officials um, really uh, take a stance on uh, against anti-Asian racism. Uh, But we also organized to ensure that the model minority myth um, wasn't shaping how public health officials were going to approach the pandemic. Uh, Because one of the things we were finding was that public health officials didn't think that um, Asian Americans were going to be disproportionately impacted by COVID because we're all presumably middle class and kind of insured and all of that when in fact that's not true, um, and so you know there's definitely been a lot of really amazing um, organizing happening um, during the pandemic. On one hand, you have kind of seasoned organizers who have been creative about using online platforms to organize. Uh, you've seen new formations be created in the in 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 during the pandemic, including the organization that I was helped to form here, the Asian American Liberation Network. So. Um, Definitely, I think uh, for many Asian Americans, there has been a new recognition of the ways in which white supremacy shapes our lives. If if for some, um, you know, if some had kind of bought into the model minority myth or experienced life, in model minority ways, I think that the pandemic um, really revealed the ways in which white supremacy continues to 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 shape our lives, and it has definitely spurred uh, new kinds of activism. Which hopefully this book can kind of provide, lend some lessons uh, and direction to, you know, because I think that there has been a kind of initial. Uh, frenzied kind of response on social media. Uh, and I'm hoping that that response can be sustained over time. And I think that there are so many lessons from our movement, elders and elders in this book that I think can help um, uh, ensure that some of that initial activity will be sustained over time, you know, as part of, you know, this longer term liberation work. And I'm sorry, I think we only have a few more minutes, but hopefully you can tackle this question <laughs> in the time that we have. Okay. It says, on the topic of leadership, what are your thoughts on
1: gender and activist leadership among Asian Americans? I will try to do a super short answer, which is to say that when you look at the Asian American movement of the 50s and 60s, I think one of its hallmarks and one of the things that we really can learn from Asian American activism is that it had a spotlight on collective leadership. This doesn't mean every organization, there was sexism in in some organizations more, but in other organizations, women were really in the leadership and that this model of collective leadership where leadership was shared and rotated, where people had charge of certain committees or certain, certain aspects, but they worked with others who were in charge with other aspects, I think is something that we can really learn um, from today, and something that I think continues to the present in Asian American activism. Now, I think this raises the question of horizontal or flat leadership. And my view is that while we want to be collaborative and collective and egalitarian and equitable, to have things be leaderless or completely horizontal where there's no division of tasks that people are, are charged with becomes very confusing and difficult, especially it may work in certain instances, but if you're trying to build bigger campaigns or movements for liberation, then I think it does require leadership. So that collective leadership is leadership, but it's one that's egalitarian and opens up space for women and others who might be seen as more on the margins to get involved and whose experiences are valued. And I, I guess I want to say this, that in this anthology, there's stories time and time again of the ways that listening to ordinary people's experiences and voices becomes the knowledge that guides our organizing. I think we might be out of time, Robin. <laughs> We didn't, I don't know how we want to end it, but I think I just want to pay tribute to all of the amazing Asian American activists and organizers across many generations and shout out to those who are doing such hard work today. May you have strength and energy, and may we collectively organize and think about
0: how we're going to build those movements for liberation. Diane C. Fugino and Robin Magled rodriguez are the co-editors of Contemporary Asian American Activism, Building Movements for Liberation. This program was presented on January 18, 2022 by Town Hall Seattle. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuworg speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.